We're in our sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew, the Kingdom of Heaven. And today uh, we're in Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34, if you want to cheat there in your Bibles. Today we come to a really heartbreaking story, at least if you're paying attention. The men that we're going to come in contact with have really come to the end of their rope. Um, there are those stories, really heartbreaking stories in Scripture that just, for lack of a better term, hit you in the feels, right? Um, one that always just gets to me is the woman at the well in John 4. Um, you have her coming to the well because she's been discarded, not by just one husband, but by five different men. So much so that she carries a scarlet letter around her, uh, around her body wherever she goes. She can't even come with the women in the morning to get the water. She's got to come at noonday alone. She's broken. When you see, hear about the man at the pool of Beth, Beth, Bethesda, I always butcher that word, Bethesda, he's a cripple, right? And he's broken. Every day is another day of hope that is dashed. And in a dog-eat-dog world, he does not know where to turn. Today's story is about two men. The other Gospels, when covering this story, only speak of one, not because the other isn't there, but because one is only the focus in their eyewitness statements. But the other Gospels paint a very clear picture of what these men are going through. They live in a graveyard. They live among the dead because in their society they might as well be. They're both possessed by evil spirits. It gives at least one of them supernatural strength. The town has tried to chain them up just to keep them from hurting others and themselves, but to no avail. The chains are broken by the evil spirit. From a Jewish perspective, these men are steeped in uncleanliness. Recall how we talked about the importance of being clean in a Jewish society especially before worship, especially before approaching God. Uh, with those with leprosy, if you remember from a couple of uh, weeks ago, they had to yell, unclean, wherever they went, just to make others aware. The men in the graveyard, from the Jewish perspective, were steeped in uncleanliness. They lived in a graveyard, very unclean. They hung out near pigs, unclean, among the dead unclean. They were Gentiles, unclean. They were so unclean that demons possessed them, unclean. Righteous people should not be anywhere near them. They live off scraps, if you call that living. They are tormented, not only in body, of course, but in soul and mind. There are times when they do have no control over what they're doing. They are trapped in sin. They live in sin. They are oppressed by sin. Death is not just at their door. They live at death's doorstep. And then, and then, Jesus arrives and everything changes. Everything changes. Please stand for the reading of the word of God this morning. And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, 
so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged Jesus, him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me this morning. Father God, we plead for the Spirit's presence. Without your Spirit's presence here this morning, my words are nothing more than a loud gong. So I ask that you would be here, that you would soften hearts, that you would pierce hearts, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would help the scales of their eyes be removed like Paul three days after Damascus, that they would see their Savior afresh. Your son's name I pray. Amen. We see at the beginning of the story the intentionality of Jesus. For those of you that might be joining us for the first time, we've been moving through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, So many of you are fully aware of everything that has taken place up to now. I'm going to give you a quick recap, a quick review. I think it bears noting. The authority of Jesus has been on display for the past four chapters. He teaches with authority, unlike the scribes. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. He heals with authority. The leper comes to him, and at a word, he's made clean. A centurion comes to Jesus, and at his authority, at his word, his servant is made well. Jesus has authority over illnesses. And while his authority is absolute, it comes at a cost. No place to rest, giving up cultural norms. We follow Jesus, and Jesus calls us to hard things. Further, we found out last week that Jesus has authority over the very winds and the seas. His authority is over created things because it is Jesus who created all things. His disciples stand in awe as Jesus calms the storm. And immediately after the storm, they walk into another one, or row, depending on how you view it. Now, I don't know how many of you have been on a boat. Any of you been on a boat in here? I love boats. Here's one of the perks about boats. There's no parking lot. A boat, if it's the right shore, you can park anywhere. Jesus could have parked in the city harbor. He could have parked next to someone's wheat field. But for some reason, As they approach the town of the Gentiles, he tells his disciples to cast anchor next to a graveyard. Can you imagine being a disciple at that moment? It's been a long few hours. You have literally seen your life flash before your eyes in the midst of a storm. And then suddenly you pull up to a graveyard in a Gentile town. They had a life-changing moment with the storm. And now they pull into the graveyard and everything's a little bit weird. You can smell pigs. That's a little bit nasty. 
And then two guys step out, one with broken chains wrapped around his arms. That's a little freaky. Uh, Jesus, can we get back in the boat? And maybe we do the whole storm thing again. I like that now that I'm on the other side of it, right? Maybe we replay that for everyone's uh, sake. And then they start running to Jesus. They're a little freaked out. You can see Simon the Zealot, right? He's probably like warming up, like stretching, like expecting this is going to be a fight. This could get nasty real quick. And they start screaming at Jesus. Look at the words. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before what time? Before what time? Think about this. These two guys know who Jesus is before asking his name. They know who Jesus is before anyone's opened his mouth. And by the way, no, on the side of their boat, it does not say Jesus Mobile. They know him. They know exactly who this is. Because spiritual beings are well aware of who God is. They're well aware of who the Son of God is. While Jesus took on flesh at the incarnation, that's Christmas, Jesus has been on the scene from the beginning of time. It was probably Jesus who cast the angels out of heaven. Jesus was the one who had bound some of the demons for their disobedience earlier in the Old Testament. The demons very much know who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is recognized not just in terms of his power. It's not in the sense that they just saw power radiating off this man who had stepped off his boat. Jesus is the Son of God. He is known in terms of his person. He's the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Even the demons know this. But notice something here, too. You can know that Jesus is the Son of God. You can know that Jesus is the Messiah, and you can still not follow Jesus. There are plenty of people that go to church on Sunday who acknowledge who the Son of God is and live in death, openly engage as sin whose homes are graveyards, and think that because they know who Jesus is, they are fine. The call to Jesus is not to know who he is. The demons know who he is. The call of Jesus is to repent of their sin and turn and follow him. The demons, legion, as the demons were called in Mark's gospel, know who Jesus is. But they would rather be cast out of these men than follow him. And they plead with Jesus not to torment them. They know that Jesus has the authority What is torment to demons, you might ask? It seems clear that it's to be without a physical host. Torment to demons is the inability to torment. Torment to demons is the inability to torment. What do you mean by that? We've all met the bully who is not happy unless he is bullying somebody. We've all met that guy or girl. Demons are the exact same way. They are not happy unless they get to torment somebody. 
but they know that torment is incoming for them. They know that their torment lies in the future. And they also know as they approach Jesus that it is not yet time. They ask, have you come here to torment us before the time? Before what time? What's he talking about? Here's the answer. The time of judgment. The time of judgment. There are two words for time in Greek. Two words for time in Greek. One is kairos and the other is chronos. AJ, why are we covering Greek? Because they both translate as time, but they have profoundly different meanings. Chronos is like a watch. It describes the ordinary moments by moments passage of time. You might be asking, at what chronos will the pastor be done with his sermon, right? The other word is kairos. Kairos refers to a special moment that takes place in time and defines the meaning and the significance of that time. We lack a corresponding term in English, hence why both are translated as time. R.C. Sproul, though, I think gives the best analogy we can muster. This is what he says. It's the difference between historical and historic. It's the difference between historical and historic. Every event that takes place within time is historical. Work this week for you was historical. It happened in history. But an historic event is of such importance that we circle it on our calendars. We name holidays after it. We know it by reference alone. September 9th is an historical day. My wife was born on September 9th. But September 11th is historic. It's historic. The demons understood, I believe ever since they were cast out of heaven, out of heaven that there would come a day an historic day in which God is appointed that he will judge the world. He will judge the living and the dead. He will judge mankind and the angelic world. Revelation 20 speaks to this. Let's look at it real quick. And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, that is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We have to talk about the full gospel this morning. We have to talk about the full gospel this morning. We should be talking the full gospel every week, but too often we don't talk about the full gospel, at least in the American church. A full understanding of the gospel includes understanding that Kairos day, that historic day. I've asked young Christians before, do you know Jesus? And they say, yes, yes, we know who Jesus is. Which we've already learned isn't about 
knowing, it's about following. I've asked young Christians, are you saved? And their response has been, yes, 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 I'm saved. And then I've asked young Christians, saved from what? And far too often I get this look. Kind of looks like this. Saved from what? If one does not know what the Savior of the world has saved them from, then it is an incomplete gospel. If someone only understands the love of God without the holiness and judgment of God, then it is an incomplete gospel. The word of God makes clear that the law is written on every human heart. We know we have broken it and we deserve condemnation, but we excuse it in our depravity. We excuse our sin because, well, everyone else is doing it. Scripture makes that clear in Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We all know this. At our core of our being, we know that we live in sin. All mankind will, on that day, at that time, will face judgment of God. Hebrews 9.27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So with judgment ahead, what can we hope for? What can we cling to? What savior can we hitch our wagon to? Who will save us? Are we even worth saving? Look how Jesus handles the situation with the demoniac men. Matthew 8, 29-32. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you will cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Sorry, PETA. This verse has been used by li- <laughs> this verse has been used by liberal scholars to make the claim that Jesus did indeed sin because he killed the pigs. I think they might be missing the point here. I actually don't think this has anything to do with the Jewish stance on bacon, which is delicious, by the way. I wholly endorse bacon from this pulpit on my birthday, on Pastor Appreciation Day. Wholly endorse bacon. There was no amen there. I expected at least one amen. Yes. Thank you. But the same principle that was in play in the storm is at play with a thousand pigs. You see, Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus has authority over creatures. Now, why did the pigs go and drown? We don't know. There's a lot of speculation. In my personal opinion, way too much ink has been spilt on the why of this. Why would demons leave people to commit suicide by swine? Did Jesus command 
the, the swine deaths. We don't know. Did the pigs know what was happening? And they went, we'd rather drown in the water than be possessed by demons. We don't know. But the point of the section has nothing to do with the pigs. The point of the section has nothing to do with the pigs. For those of you that have pet pigs, the point of the section has nothing to do with the pigs. It has everything to do with the people around the pigs. Matthew 8, 33 through 34. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. How much is a person worth? How much is a person worth? To the two former demon-possessed men, their lives were not worth a thousand pigs to the people of the city. I doubt their lives were even worth one pig to the people of the city. They'd caused a ruckus in town. It was clear that they had been problem people, and the thought of their livelihood being destroyed was infuriating, even if they saw the demon-possessed men in the right mind. Every gospel, well, the synopsis, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this story. And notice how Mark describes what happens to the demon-possessed men in Mark 5. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed men, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. The same fear that gripped the disciples on the seas just before gripped the people of the Decapolis as they stood before Jesus. They had tried everything they could to rid themselves of these men. Because at the end of the day, these men were not worth anything to them. They were to be disposed of the moment they caused trouble. Now, before we think of ourselves much more high and mighty than the people of the Decapolis, let's think about this. We're human. You and I are so prone to put people into competing in diametric categories. We do this every day. Those who are worth our time and those who are not. Those who are worth our effort and those who are not. Those who are worth our affection and those who are not, those who are worthwhile, and those who are worth less. And we will switch people into a different box if they perform the right way for us, and especially if they fail us. There are times we find great joy putting people in the right box and the wrong box. There is great satisfaction at watching people get what they deserve. But that is not the heart of God. If everyone got what they deserved, none would be saved. All would face judgment on that day. If God was only just, then you and I would be damned. But that is not the heart of God. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If we have learned anything these past few weeks, we have learned about the infinite worth of Jesus, 
The glory of God is indeed the glory of God. There is no one else in all creation. There is no one else in all time. There is no one else in all space that deserves the praise that Jesus deserves. There is no other foundation to build our house upon. There is no other name in which to live. For all authority on heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. And because of the infinite worth of Jesus, you and I have worth. He has placed his worth upon us. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought of what it actually means to be an image bearer of God? What it means to be his image bearer. His worth has been imprinted upon you. The reason you are beautiful is because you bear the very image of God. The reason you have purpose is because you bear the very image of God. The reason there is joy to seek is because you bear the very image of God. The reason you love as God loves is because you bear the very image of God. The good things, the noble things, the worthy things we engage in are all because we bear the image of God. There's even a commandment associated with this. Have you ever thought about the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain? Most of us relate it to just cursing, and that's part of it. You shouldn't curse the Lord's name. But there's so much more to this. As an image bearer, the very name of God is imprinted upon you. Therefore, we live in a manner worthy of the name. When we don't, we take his name in vain. When we hate what is good and honor what God hates, we take his name in vain. When we treat others as worthless, we do not live up to our own worth. You see, what others see as worthless, Jesus seems to go out of his way for. What others see as worthless, Jesus seems to go out of his way for. I want you to think about the story of the past few weeks. We're putting it all together and button it up here. Jesus ministers to the crowds. He heals the unclean, the unrighteous, the poor, the destitute, the lowly. He leaves via boat, we think, to get a break in ministry. For everyone who's been on a cruise, they're like, I love leaving by boat. But instead, Jesus has a destination in mind. It's through a storm, which he is happy to come to show the disciples who is in charge. But the destination is a place of death a place where people go to die, to overcome the army of the evil one, to free people who had done nothing for him and others deem as worthless. Let me repeat that one more time. But instead, Jesus has a destination in mind. It's through a storm, which he's happy to come to show the disciples he's in charge. But the destination is a place of death, a place where people go to die to overcome the army of the evil one, to free people who have done nothing for him and others deem as worthless. By the way, I'm not just talking about the graveyard outside of the Decapolis. I'm talking about Calvary. 
That was the destination the whole time. The place of sin, the place of death, the place where the unrighteous go to pay the penalty of sin, the place where evil men dwell, that Jesus goes through the storm to get there. Why? To set the captive free, to save the oppressed from evil, to model to a world that treats every other type of person as worthless, that they have infinite worth because of the work of God. Child of God, do you not realize how much worth you have to Jesus? He entered into death. So when that day comes, you need not face it in fear, but with wonder. For it is on that day that you will see his face and marvel. Two questions come to mind naturally from this. The first is simple. Do you know this Jesus who rules over creation and all creatures? Do you know him? Not just in a title or a name, but personally. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Are you following him? If your answer is no, see me, see Pastor Jack after service. One of the elders, your friend that you came with. Second question. If you do know him, what now? What now? Now that you've been set free from the oppression of sin, now that you've been saved not just from hell, but the power of sin, what now will you do? The Gospel of Mark tells us at least one of the, what one of the demon-possessed men did. Mark 5, 18 through 20. And as he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might go with him, be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell him how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Child of God, if you have indeed been saved by the, from the power of sin, by the work of Jesus, who then will you tell? Start with your friends. Start there. Tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy upon you. Invite them to church. This is a fun statistic I heard this week. I think it's from Barna. Over 80% of unchurched people said they would be willing to go to church if a friend invited them. Over 80%. Y'all, we would be playing the scratch-off lottery every week if the winning odds were four out of five. We would do a lot of fun things if the winning odds were four out of five. 80% would be willing to go to church if a friend invited them. Here's the kicker. Only 2% of church people ever make the invite. Tell your story. And in the process, tell his story. And then invite your friends into the greatest story ever told. 
They are worth it. They are worth it. Bow your heads with me.